We're going to start a study in the book of 1 Corinthians, and the place to start is chapter 2. So you haven't missed chapter 1. We're going to circle back, as they say. But I hope you'll see the value of our starting in chapter 2, verse 14, and reading through chapter 3, verse 4. So that's our text, the topic we're going to find there. The Apostle Paul introduces to us the carnal Christian who he describes as a believer still yielding to his or her flesh. The title of our message, Christian con carne. (laughs) Where were you guys first service? I'm telling you, nobody even breathed when I said that first service. I was in a deep hole before I even prayed. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time that you've called us to. And uh, Lord, while we, we do have a, a lot of fun and, and we, uh, we have humor because you gave us that, Lord, we also take the word seriously and we appreciate that you're going to minister it to our hearts as we hear it. You're going to speak to us between the soul and the spirit in that place only you can. And you're going to make us more like Jesus and let us know more about that grace that is superabounding. Help us as we work through these verses, Lord. I pray that they be clear and understandable and inspirational. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. When I visited Joe, he had been given five, maybe six months to live. His doctor had somberly advised him, you have some life left, live it well. The diagnosis, brain cloud. Might as well travel to a South Pacific island and satisfy the natives by throwing yourself into a volcano. Of course, I'm talking about Joe Banks, who in Joe versus the Volcano was played by Tom Hanks. Ever see that movie, Joe versus the Volcano? It's a classic, right below the burbs in terms of (laughs) Academy Award-winning performances. Now, Joe didn't really have a brain cloud. It was a scam to get someone to volunteer as a human sacrifice. Brain cloud is a real thing, however, only it's not fatal. I suffer from it, and I know that so do many of you. It's a temporary inability to think properly or to remember something. I will have several brain clouds this morning, as as most of you know. Now, it is not to be confused with a brain freeze. Do you all know what a brain freeze is? Who doesn't know what a brain freeze is? Raise your hand. All right. Just be careful drinking your chapel chiller this afternoon. There's no known cure for a brain freeze. And uh, I mean, it hurts. You think you're having an aneurysm. It's crazy. So, you didn't think I'd start with something that serious, did you? I hope to lighten the mood a bit because I am going to use medical diagnoses as an illustration, and I didn't want it to bring some of you immediately back into a traumatic memory. To quote Nick Fury, I'm nice like that. (laughs) Something is wrong. You go to the doctor. After the exam and running all the pertinent tests, you receive the diagnosis. Whether it's something mild or major, you're smart to take it seriously and take the steps necessary to cure or help counter or control what you've got. We're going to begin our studies in 1 Corinthians with a diagnosis that will greatly help us in understanding everything else we read about that church. It's not a physical diagnosis, of course. It's a spiritual one. It was presented to the believers in Corinth by the Apostle Paul after he examined a firsthand report about what their church life was like. It's found at the beginning of chapter 2, as I told you, in verse 14, and it carries on into the fourth verse of chapter 3. So let's read those as a unit. 
1 Corinthians 2.14, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that we may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able. For you are still carnal, for where there are envy and strife and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? As many of you know, there were problems in the church at Corinth, lots and lots of problems. With the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit, Paul was able to diagnose their root condition 350 miles away. He said, you are still carnal. Now, carnal means flesh or of the flesh or fleshly. In this context, it describes a believer in Jesus Christ who still thinks like and behaves like they did before they were born again one who yields to the influence of their unredeemed flesh rather than to the indwelling Holy Spirit. Since it is possible to be in Christ and still carnal, it makes sense that we let the Holy Spirit examine us, run some tests, and then heed his diagnosis. I'll organize my comments around two questions that must be asked and answered. Number one, are you still natural and a non-believer? And if not, number two, are you still a carnal believer? So let's look at Number one, are you still natural and a non-believer? The doctor will FaceTime with you now. Sounds odd, but that's what's being uh, called telehealth, and it's growing in popularity. Uh, I get notices about this all the time from Blue Cross where they want you to sign up so that you can contact a doctor online for minor things and maybe even a short exam. I mean, there's some things they can't diagnose, obviously, but it can save a trip. Uh, and so you end up FaceTiming with a doctor and paying 150 bucks for it. But uh, still, you know, it's, it's popular. I'm only mentioning it because Paul diagnosed the church in Corinth from Ephesus. He told them their condition using three states of being, natural, spiritual, and carnal. The natural man, woman, or child is a person who has been born once, born physically, but not born a second time, not born spiritually. It's a word that describes all non-believers. He who is spiritual describes a person who has been born again. Doesn't mean they are mature. We sometimes use that word and say, Gene is super mature. He's super spiritual. Now, I know none of you would ever say that, so maybe one of you. Who's spiritual here? Raise your hand. There, we're all in the same boat, and it's sinking. But anyway, we, we say of people, oh, that guy's really spiritual, or that guy's really spiritual, but that's not the sense here. It simply means the person is saved. The moment you're saved, you have the spirit, therefore you are spiritual. And then there are those who are still carnal. When we get there, in our second point, you'll see Paul was definitely scribing a believer, but one whose behavior was being influenced by the world and not by the word. And so we begin in verse 14 of chapter 2, but the natural man. I was thinking about uh, this. Adam and Eve have been given new names. Uh, their titles, really. They are now called by geneticists Y-chromosomal Adam and mitochondrial Eve. And the reason is because genetics has finally caught up to the Bible. 
and they're admitting that we all descended from an original couple. You know, we always are worried about science proving the Bible, and really, science catches up to the Bible. We've always known that, and it's been ridiculed. Oh, they're Adam and Eve. Now, they're still not talking about the biblical Adam and Eve, but they adopt the names because everybody knows what they're talking about, an original couple from which all of that flows. And by the way, this is an aside, and I don't know a lot about it, but I know this much. The modern study of genetics is really destroying a lot of previously understood things in the scientific community. For example, uh, there's a whole group of non-believing scientists, geneticists, who tell you that evolution is impossible based on what we know about genetics today. It's absolutely impossible. There really is no debate anymore between the Bible and evolution because science has killed evolution even though people won't admit it. And so if you really get into this genetic stuff, you'll find out uh, that there's a lot that has been overturned. And they've, like I said, they've caught up to what the Bible has taught all along, but from a spiritual viewpoint. The natural man is the descendant of that first biblical couple, Adam and Eve. Their legacy is that they exercised their free will in Eden to disobey God. It brought upon them the consequences God had clearly warned them of, namely, and I quote, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. The moment they disobeyed God, they immediately died spiritually. The moment they disobeyed God, they began to die physically. And the moment they disobeyed God, they were destined to die eternally to be separated from God for all eternity in a place of conscious torment we commonly refer to as hell, but it's more properly the lake of fire. Now, this event we call the fall of man or simply the fall. A result of the fall is that every descendant of Adam and Eve, every human being ever conceived, inherits a sin nature and we commit acts of sin and we are disqualified from entering heaven. The natural man the way we all start out, is physically alive and soulishly active, but he's spiritually dead. Without divine intervention, he or she will die physically and then eternally. So verse 14 again, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. By the way, first service I said discerned, so those of you who think that's the proper pronunciation should have been here. This service I'm using discerned because I don't want to lose any of you who are really smart. <laughs> Wi-Fi allows your smartphone or tablet to connect wirelessly to a network on the World Wide Web. It sends out a signal those devices can receive. The Spirit of God is omnipresent, but the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God because he or she was born with no capacity to connect. The spirit of the natural man is dead, his receiver, as it were, is not functioning. The things of God are spiritually discerned. The natural man, hearing unaided about the things of the Spirit, considers them foolishness. The Bible is full of stories that seem foolish but turn out to reveal a wisdom that can only be attributed to God. I mean, we're not saying anything derogatory to say that there are a bunch of foolish stories in the Bible. Jonah and the great fish, that's Pretty crazy, really, on the surface. We accept it. We understand it. And it's not a matter even of measuring fish to see if one, because it says God prepared a great fish. Might have just been the Jonah fish, one of a kind. Who knows? But uh, what, what I'm saying is, before you're a Christian, that's a children's story. It's a myth. It's, it's foolishness to think it would have anything to do 
with salvation. And yet Jesus points back to it and says, I'm gonna be in the earth three days and three nights like Jonah was in the belly of the great fish. And that is a wisdom that God portrays that we learn about after we get saved that the natural man can't understand or receive. Lost my place. I should not tell stories. I was full of story. Okay, yeah, I'm in the right place. But he who is spiritual, verse 15. You don't become spiritual by spending lots of time fasting and praying. You don't become spiritual by giving of your time and your talent. Being spiritual isn't an achievement, it's a receivement. I was proud of that. It means you've been... <laughs> I feel like we're sharing together. I can, we're, we're friends, right? It means you've been born again. In the very first Nick at night, the Jewish leader Nicodemus came to Jesus after dark to ask the Lord a few questions. As he usually did, Jesus turned the tables on his questioner, telling him that he must be born again in order to go to heaven. Jesus pointed out that Nicodemus had already been born once, born physically. He needed this second birth, a spiritual birth. He needed to be quickened or regenerated or saved. These are all terms that refer to this event. Jesus is the savior of the whole world, the Bible says, especially those who believe. That means his death and resurrection are sufficient to save anyone, anywhere, at any time. Not everyone is saved. We are not universalists. Some will be lost, but the death of Jesus on the cross is sufficient to save all men. Now, he did say that no man could come to him unless he draws them, but he also said that by being lifted up in death on the cross, he would draw all men to himself. He would make, it, make a way for all men to receive him. How can that be implemented? Well, let me read a short, simple doctrinal statement that I agree with. This writer says, we believe that humanity was created in the image of God, but fell from its original sinless state through willful disobedience and Satan's deception, resulting in eternal condemnation and separation from God. In and of themselves and apart from the grace of God, human beings can neither think, will, nor do anything good including believe. But the prevenient grace of God prepares and enables sinners to receive the free gift of salvation offered in Christ and by his gospel. Only through the grace of God can sinners believe and so be regenerated by the Holy Spirit unto salvation and spiritual life. Prevenient grace is grace that goes before. That's all that the word means. It goes before. It's all of the ways God works in our lives before we really know him at all it reveals God's heart for his creation. It testifies to God being the initiator of a relationship with him, revealing him as the one who pursues us, not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. God calls all people everywhere to repent and believe the gospel, and he graciously enables those who hear the gospel to respond to it positively in faith. God the Holy Spirit frees your will to receive the Lord. The natural man is thus by the Spirit of God enabled to receive Jesus by grace through faith or to go on rejecting him. So verse 15, he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. This verse is too often taken out of context to defend someone who claims they have authority from God that cannot be judged but must be accepted. Uh, this happens uh, you know, with Christian leaders a lot where they say they have special revelation or they're in a category by themselves. But Christians do it all the time. I, I encounter it in uh, marriage counseling uh, when people come in and they say, God told me this. 
about my marriage and that it's okay for me to get a divorce even though I don't have grounds. And you know, whenever somebody says that to you, and they go, you know, I've been praying about it and the Lord told me. Well, then what are you supposed to say? No, he didn't. I mean, that's a way of, that's a way of, I'm not saying we always do this, that it's, that it's always indicative of this, but it is a way of posturing so that you, you, you're really saying to somebody, I mean, when you say, hey, the Lord told me, what you're really saying is, I don't care about your opinion, this is what I'm going to do. The Lord told me this. And you know, obviously you wanna be careful, I don't know what the Lord is telling people, unless what they're telling them is wrong and sinful and contrary to his word, and then a good answer is, no, he didn't, because he won't contradict himself and here's what the Bible says. And so we need to be careful about this uh, and, and make sure. So that's an aside, but this verse isn't really teaching that. What it is teaching is that once you're born again, you can discern and understand the things of the Spirit. The natural man can't, he, and, and, and he can't judge you either, and that means he's ignorant of spiritual things. So when you're describing to the natural man spiritual things, he can't say, well, that's not true, or you're wrong. He's ignorant. He's just not able to receive them. And, and so we, one of the arguments Paul gets into in this letter, where these verses are placed, by the way, has to do with the wisdom of men versus the wisdom of God. And he'll go on to say the wisdom of God is foolishness to men uh, because they can't receive it. And so that's what's going on here. It's letting us know that we can discern the mind of God. In verse 16, who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. So the answer is, uh, this is from Isaiah uh, the, the, uh, it's obviously a, a, a rhetorical question and the answer to it is no one, no one can know the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ, meaning we can understand spiritual things, not to instruct the Lord, but to be instructed by him. Now, it's interesting to me, uh, and you, this is a good meditation, people do instruct the Lord. As I've told you many times over the years, people think biblical Christianity is a relatively modern religion, starting with Jesus Christ. And really, you and I know that Christianity started in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, because that's where the first gospel was proclaimed. That's where the Lord said he was coming to die for the sins of the world and rise from the dead uh, and deal with Satan and all of that stuff. And so the whole history of man is biblical Christianity. And by the time Buddha comes or Confucius or Muhammad or some of these other guys, they're way later. But what happens is people look at biblical Christianity and they say, we don't wanna have anything to do with that. I don't want a crucified savior. I don't wanna you know, pick up my cross and follow him. I don't want to be the greatest of all by being the servant of all. And so I'm going to instruct the Lord and say, this is the religion I'm going to make up. I'm gonna have my own religion. And some of them catch on. And other people, you know, get involved in it. And they all involve human works. Everything else but biblical Christianity involves human works. You can somehow work your way to heaven. And uh, that's what people want to do. And that's the instruction they give to God. And, and they're ignorant of spiritual things. We understand that it's all by grace. We have the mind of Christ. We can understand these things. We're instructed by him and in the second birth, we discern them. And so closing out this section, here's a good question. How many times have you been born? Once for sure, but have you been born twice? Have you been born spiritually? 
No question could be more important to answer. And it may be that one or two or more individuals here today never really been born again, never been regenerated, never been quickened, never asked Christ to be your savior and confessed your sins and repented of them and come to the Lord. And so that's the place to just stop and meditate as we go on. Now in chapter three, are you still a carnal believer? Some say that the carnal Christian is not a Christian. If you've studied this or if you do study this, you're gonna find a lot of even solid Bible teachers who tell you there's no such thing as a carnal Christian, just a Christian who can act carnally every now and then. Well, let's see what Paul says. In verse one of chapter three, he addressed those who were still carnal as his brethren. And since Corinth was a mostly Gentile church, Paul cannot mean they were fellow Jews. They weren't his brothers in that sense. They were his Christian brothers and sisters by virtue of the second birth. And in that same verse, he called them babes in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are saved. And so let's take it on in verse one. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal. A paraphrase of this might be, brothers and sisters, you're saved but I have to conclude from your behavior that you are carnal. Now, it might be good to pause and discuss the Corinthian carnality crisis. We'll read in a moment in verse three that there was envy and strife and division in the church. Those are behaviors of the natural man. When a spiritual man, a believer, behaves that way, he or she is yielding to their unredeemed flesh. He or she is thinking like the world. They're thinking like they thought before having the mind of Christ. Now, there's a lot we could say about Corinth, the city. This ought to suffice. In ancient Greece, Corinthian was an insult addressed at vagrants, drunkards, and sexual deviants. And so if you wanted to insult somebody, you'd say, you Corinthian, whether they were Corinthian or not. It was the worst thing you could say about somebody in Greece at that time because of their awful reputation. Bible commentators universally compare it to places you go to in order to sinfully overindulge your physical passions. You might think of a place like Las Vegas, but it's actually slipped to number four on the list of most sinful cities in the world. There's a list of everything, you're right. Don't you know that? And uh, this particular list puts Vegas at number four. My number one city, my choice would have been Amsterdam. Sorry if you're Dutch, uh, but a lot of really wicked things go on there. I can't believe they have tours of the red light district, like it's something to tour. But anyway, a city I can't really pronounce in Thailand ranks number one. I think it's Pattaya. Years ago, I brought this up. It's been number one for a long time, and I think I called it Pattaya. Pattaya? Yeah, Pattaya. I said that at the YMCA, and then sailors came up and said, no, it's Pattaya, so now I'm being corrected the other way. (laughs) I can't win, but thank you. And the reason she knows that is because sailors go there, and uh, (laughs) not necessarily to be immoral. There's a lot of other great things in Pattaya or Pattaya or that town, (laughs) but anyway, that's a true story, by the way. I I pronounced it correctly, and I got corrected, and so that's, thank you, that's great. What a great moment in time. I feel like it brings my teaching career into full focus. If anybody asks me, what's it like teaching the Bible? I say, well, uh, patai, patty, I, you say potato, I say potato, you know, that kind of thing. So some of the carnalities in the church in Corinth, sexual sin was being tolerated, even celebrated. For example, there was a man among them who was living incestuously with his father's wife. They thought that it was big of them to tolerate that. By the way, as an aside, 
the reason we're studying this book is because we're being led by the Holy Spirit to do it. But now that we're in it, uh, it's going to be very contemporary. So when I say that the church was leaning towards sexual immorality, we see that today. In fact, some commentators called this book the first Californians. Uh, and uh, it's going to be very, very pertinent to where we're at as a society. Second thing, the Lord's Supper was being defiled. They had a potluck before the Lord's Supper every week. And some people who were more wealthy were bringing a lot of food and eating their own food themselves and not sharing with others. They were hoarding it. And then as Remy said, uh, or Emil, Remy's brother said in Ratatouille, they were horking it down. <laughs> hey, how you doing over there? Ah, ah, ah. And then to top it off, they were getting drunk before taking communion. Believers were suing other believers, dragging them into secular courts, making a mockery of the wisdom of God and the love of God. And you may not know it, but lawsuits are big among Christians today, more so than ever. We'll talk about it when we get there. And some of them were continuing to visit the temples of various idols, eating the meals that were a sacrifice to false gods. Their belly was leading them, not their beliefs. And I, brethren, cannot speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able. Now, we immediately associate milk with immaturity and solid food like meat with maturity. People like to say things like, that church is teaching milk, but Calvary Chapel is teaching the meat. The Word of God is compared to a lot of great foods besides milk and meat, bread and honey for two of them. Milk doesn't always refer to something less nourishing than meat. I mean, if you're having Oreos, you want milk or do you want a top sirloin? Hey, that <laughs> uh, doesn't work. By the way, I found out, I think I mentioned this to you just as an encouragement, Oreos are vegan. They are. So you can eat them and say that you're healthy. I think Paul was comparing them to babies. Babies are super cute, but they're super selfish. They are the epitome of the sin nature. They cry for no reason, almost always in the middle of the night or at the worst possible time. They poop whenever and wherever they feel like it. <laughs> Even cats use a litter box. I mean, <laughs> we shut down a restaurant in San Bernardino years ago. I, I think it was my daughter, Mary, who had a blowout crisis. Oh, my gosh. I still remember it and want to heave. No amount of towels or tissues could get what was coming out of her and stuff. And so we finally just got out of there. And it was, co are there any Cocos anymore? Is that a restaurant chain still? Not in San Bernardino. <laughs> and then they throw tantrums. They definitely want their way, especially if you're not the mama. No way you want them to remain babies all their lives. They're cute for a season and then let's go. For you are still carnal, for where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? They weren't mere men. They weren't unsaved, but they were behaving like the natural man they once were. For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? The believers were rallying around different Bible teachers. Paul noted that their motive for doing so was envy, producing strife, and divisions. Anytime you can identify envy, strife, and divisions among believers, they are carnal. It doesn't matter the reason or the excuse. It's easy to think we are right 
and therefore that we can act wrong in defense of it. You're more wrong. I'm wrong, but you're more wrong, so it's okay. No, it's not. I don't know who first said it, but somebody said it, you have the right to be wronged. And that's something we don't like to hear in our free society, but the church has nothing to do with what your rights and privileges might be in this great United States. In the church, you have the right to be wronged the way Jesus was treated uh, in his ministry and his life. He had the right to be wronged, and he exercised that right so that he could die on the cross and rise from the dead for you and me. And so memorize that. I have the right to be wronged, and then apply that in your life. Now, we're not off the hook if we're not doing the things Paul addresses in his letter to the Corinthians. Uh, maybe you're not committing sexual sin or getting drunk or any of those other things. But there are other ways to remain carnal. We can be doing the work of God in our own strength, not in his. That's carnal. Our basic worldview can itself be materialistic. That's carnal. We can make our own plans to live comfortably and avoid the commitment of discipleship. That's carnal. And so uh, we want to get deeper into what carnality is in our own life. And after all, we're all in bodies of unredeemed flesh that are prone to carnality. And so we're going to find carnality. If you don't find any carnality in your life, that's carnal. (laughs) You're lying to yourself. Uh, This isn't to get everybody down. It's to realize that, hey, God is doing a work in me. He's perfecting me. He's making me into the image of Christ. And I want to cooperate with that. One of the news stations has a motto, be informed, not influenced. Of course, their news reports lean so far to the left, they're lying down. We might adapt the motto to say of believers, be infilled by the Spirit, not influenced by the world. If you're committing sexual sin, causing division, suing another believer, getting drunk, those are defined for you as carnal. That's easy to say. You can go up to each other and say, hey, is this true of you? Yeah, then you're carnal right now. You need to, you need to repent. But as I said, the Spirit wants to go deeper, deconstructing your thinking to see where your fundamental approach to life and godliness is still, might be still carnal. Now listen, Paul didn't label them carnal as if it was something to be commended or, or something that was all right. It wasn't like, oh, 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 you're one of those carnal Christians. Okay, go for it. No, no, no. It should have shocked them. It should have been like the medical diagnosis that rocks your world. Those of you who've heard your doctor say, you've got cancer, you know what I mean. If God says, you've got carnal, then you ought to want to eradicate it before it spreads. Nobody was ever told, you've got cancer, and it's great, fantastic. What can I do to get more cancer? No, it, it's, it, it, you want to get rid of that. It, what's the treatment? Let's go. I'll do almost anything to do it. And that's the idea, that's the understanding we need to have of being carnal. God says, hey, Gene, you're carnal. I have to do something about this right now before it spreads and becomes much more difficult. Commentators stress over how much sin is too much sin since a saint still can sin. <laughs> Try and say that. I couldn't get through it first service. Gene thought I was having an aneurysm, but it was just a brain freeze. Anyway, they admit there is such a thing as the carnal Christian, but they insist only temporary, only a momentary state, only a sin here or there. They seem afraid to say as if it's heresy that a believer can remain carnal. Now, I don't want to... Here's all I can say. I thought, how am I going to answer that or how am I going to deal with that? And so I thought... Is there in the Bible a carnal believer that can serve as our example? Now, I believe there is, and I'll give you a clue. This man's wife was a pillar in the community. 
Yeah, I got a million of them. We haven't had to use the laugh track at all. Let's lighten the mood. Lot was the nephew of Abraham. Here are some of the lowlights in his biography. Given a choice of grazing land for his flocks, Lot chose the well-watered plain in the direction of the notoriously wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot kept moving closer to Sodom and Gomorrah until he settled there. He became a city leader, had zero testimony for God, and exerted zero influence. When the men of Sodom and Gomorrah surrounded Lot's house, wanting to sexually assault the two visitors inside, Lot offered to send out his two virgin daughters instead, father of the year. When the two visitors, who were angels, powerful angels, told Lot to flee so that they could destroy the place, he lingered. He didn't want to go. He and his wife and daughters were literally drug out of town. Told by the angels to flee to the mountains, Lot refused and told them he would go to another city. And then he decided to hide in a cave instead. While holed up in that cave on successive nights, Lot's two daughters got him drunk, had sex with him, becoming pregnant with sons Moab and Ammon, whose descendants, the Moabites and the Ammonites, would long trouble the nation of Israel. And as far as we know, Lot died in that cave, a broken man. So you're reading your Bible straight through, and you get to the story of Lot pretty early in Genesis, and you're not even wondering if he's a believer. You know he's not. By the time you open 2 Peter, about 60 books later, you haven't thought about him for the longest time. And then you read this, 2 Peter 2, 7. God delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Godly, righteous, who said? Well, God said, inspiring Peter. And so all we can do is thank God for superabounding grace. No matter how carnal you get, God's grace can cover it. Should we sin, though, that grace might abound? God forbid you'd even think that way. Do you really want to be a believer like Lot? Again, just think of him just from an earthly point of view. At one point, he hung around with Abraham, the greatest spiritual man of his generation, father of the Israelites and of all believers, father of the faith. He had so much wealth and possessions that they, the land couldn't bear both of them. And then he went on a slide downward to where he ended up living with nothing in a cave, a guy who had committed incest by drunkenness, and as far as we know, that's how his life ended or where his life ended. And so you don't, you don't want to be like Lot <laughs> in any dimension, especially not as a believer. Since there are these three categories, natural, spiritual, and carnal, the question is, what man am I? What man are you? If you are natural, well, you must be born again. And the Holy Spirit has brought you to this place so that you can hear that Jesus Christ lived and died and rose from the dead to save you from your sins. And you can come forward today and receive Christ as your Savior because the Holy Spirit frees your will to make that decision. If the diagnosis you receive is you are still carnal, then your prescription is simple. Repent and go on in the joy of the Lord. Let's pray.